This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. And you know, this is going to be one of those kinds of programs today, one of the programs where we catch up on things that have piled up, which we haven't had a chance to get to. And uh, thus, we are going to have no particular guest in our second segment today, where we usually place uh, our honored guests. Instead, we'll continue to rant about what we find in the news. I would like to forward promote the fact that on next week's program, we're going to speak with James Kakalios about his curious and entertaining book, The Physics of Superheroes. We do expect to hear from our good pal Will Durst later in today's program, and maybe maybe some other help from some of our friends. We'll, we'll see. It's hard to believe, but it's already the 10th of July. The year is already more than half over. But let's, uh, let's start the show as we like to do with On This Date in History. And it was on July 10th, in the year 1778, that French King Louis XVI declared war on England in support of the American Revolution. It's been said by some that Benjamin Franklin's uh, efforts to woo the French court into throwing their support to, into the struggling colonies, which were then engaged in, in their revolution against Great Britain, well, that Benjamin Franklin was critical to the war effort because French support certainly did turn the tide for America's budding revolutionaries. And uh, speaking of revolutionaries, when the French had their own revolution, Louis XVI, well, he just kind of lost his head over the whole affair. It was on July 10th in 1790 that the U.S. House of Representatives voted to locate the national capital on a site along the Potomac River. That site is, of course, today better known as Bayonne, New Jersey. No, actually, it's Washington, D.C. On July 10th in 1900, his master's voice, one of the most famous trademarks in the world, was registered with the U.S. Patent Office. It was created for the Victor Recording Company, later RCA Victor, and the logo showed a dog looking into the horn of a gramophone. It was indeed one of the great logos of all time. Unfortunately, General Electric, which bought RCA, decided a few years back that it was, it was really old-fashioned and they pretty much purged it from all of the company literature. Sad. Although I read somewhere uh, that, that some guy was able to purchase an extremely large fiberglass dog at a bargain rate. On July 10th in 1962, Telstar 1, the world's first commercial communications satellite, was launched from Cape Canaveral, Florida. Three hours after launch, it had already relayed its first telephone call, that from the chairman of AT&T to Vice President Lyndon Baines Johnson. Also on this day, the satellite relayed the first transoceanic satellite test telecast from Maine to various points in Europe and the United States. And although I'm sure it seems hard to imagine to our younger listeners, uh, uh, this correspondent clearly remembers watching a television broadcast where they were stressing, this is something that's actually taking place live now. This is not on film. I remember thinking as a kid, that's amazing. And of course, it was, and still is. And one of the most screwball things that took place on this date was on July 10th in 1925, 
When in Dayton, Tennessee, the monkey trial began with John Thomas Scopes, a high school science teacher, facing trial uh, for being accused of teaching evolution in violation of a Tennessee state law. The law made it a misdemeanor punishable by fine to teach any theory that denies the story of divine creation of man as taught in the Bible and to teach instead that man is descended from a lower order of animals. It was actually the ACLU that, uh, that uh, forced the issue on this. They, they conspired with John Scopes to uh, have him teach evolution, which he really didn't know much about, and then face trial. The trial is somewhat famous uh, in, in legal history for uh, Clarence Darrow, acting for the defense of John Scopes, making a monkey out of the man working for the prosecution. That would be former three-time Democratic candidate for president, William Jennings Bryan. What's really horrible about this case is that 83 years later, various nuts in this country are still pushing this agenda of teaching creationism in science class. And by the way, uh, we take a firm position on, uh, on this program that creationism should be given its due in America's science classes. Then after you've spent the full 30 seconds on the topic, it's time to move on. Our quote of the day comes from Republican presidential candidate John McCain, who uh, told reporters while he was smiling and waiting for a, a Philly cheesesteak in Pennsylvania, well, actually, he was informed about the fact that, um, that on George W. Bush's watch, uh, America has shipped Iran $158 million in cigarettes despite restrictions on exports. Said McCain, maybe that's a way of killing them. Reportedly, Cindy McCain, sitting next to him at the counter, poked him in the back without looking up, which point he added, I meant that as a joke. Our uh, quip of the day comes from Conan O'Brien, who said, Over the 4th of July, did you hear this? President Bush gave a speech at the home of former President Thomas Jefferson. Yeah, there was an awkward moment when, the pre when President Bush said, I'd like to salute both President Thomas Jefferson and his wife, Wheezy. Our statistic of the day is the fact that, uh, that the G8, the group of eight industrialized economies that are currently holding a meeting in Japan, have endorsed cutting world greenhouse gases in half by the year 2050. And, and no, we're not sure why they're rushing it like that instead of maybe setting the target for the year 2400 AD. But then President Bush was there. And, and we'll have more to say about that in just a minute. But... Uh, our joke of the day is as follows. An older gentleman had an appointment to see the urologist who was part of a large group practice. In fact, the waiting room was completely filled up with all the various doctor's patients. As he approached the receptionist, he noticed that she was an unfriendly looking person who looked kind of like a biker chick. He gave his name and in a loud voice, the receptionist said, yeah, I have you right here. You want to see one of our doctors about your impotence, is that right? All the patients in the waiting room then snapped their heads around to look at the man. He paused a second, and then an equally loud voice replied, Actually, I've come to ask about a sex change operation, and I like to request that I don't get the same doc that did yours. Anyway, back to the G8 summit. I, I hope you caught the picture. I saw this in the Chronicle, I'm sure it was elsewhere, about the illustrious leaders of the world's, uh, the world's foremost industrialized nations planting some trees in 
Toyako in northern Japan. If you haven't seen this picture, I would encourage you to make an effort to do so. The picture shows two groups of three men wielding shovels to plant two trees. And it appears in the photograph that Russian President Dmitry Medvedev, Canadian Prime Minister Stephen Harper, and Jose Manuel Doral Barroso, President of the European Union, are wielding their shovels with some competency. But to their immediate right are U.S. President George Bush, Japanese Prime Minister Yasuo Fukuda, and French President Nicolas Sarkozy. Fukuda appears to be closely studying the men to see what he can learn from their technique about planting the uh, tree. Sarkozy, who's the best dressed of the lot, is only holding the shovel in one hand, seems quite amused at the fact that these other leaders actually have spadefuls of soil. And rounding out the photograph is George W. Bush, who is holding the shovel so awkwardly, it appears he's never had such an implement in his hands before. Of course, in all fairness, it does appear that this particular set of shovels does have sort of a hand grip at the end of the handle, and, and Bush seems to be wondering if there's some kind of trick to this. But as we just noted, uh, these, these gentlemen have got together and decided to cut greenhouse gases in half 42 years into the future. Commenting upon this, Daniel Mittler, Greenpeace's international climate expert, said in a statement, The G8 have failed the world again. While the Arctic is melting, the G8 are postponing action. Instead of climate protection, the world got nothing but flowery words. In fairness, we think he's being a little cynical. After all, the world also got at least two planted trees out of the deal. All right, let's do the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to the Associated Press, last week was a good week for astute medical diagnosticians. When a doctor in an emergency room in Waukesha, Wisconsin, observed that the 50-year-old Milwaukee area man that they'd brought in uh, was the same guy that previously had been brought in and evidently was faking heart attacks to avoid paying restaurant bills and cab fares. Police said the man took a cab to the mall last week and pretended to have a heart attack. The cab driver left unpaid. He apparently also then ran up a $23 bill when he had a steak dinner at Applebee's. He then, again, pretended to have a heart attack. But that time, the fireman took him to the hospital and the astute doctor put two and two together. The man was evidently charged last Thursday with defrauding a restaurant as a habitual criminal. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for demonstrating humility a few weeks back when rap star P. Diddy commented upon his undertaking the Sidney Portier role in A Raisin in the Sun by saying, He was obviously more seasoned as an actor, but it can be said that my interpretation will have more impact on this generation. Finally, it was an ugly week uh, last week for Jeffersonian tributes. And we just mentioned George Bush commenting about Thomas Jefferson earlier. But apparently William Crystal, the neocon that's uh, champing in the bit for a war with Iran, wrote a column about the enduring words of Jefferson, which, uh, which prompted this A1 letter to the Sacramento Bee by Doug Gerard of Carmichael, who said, Reading William Crystal's comments on the words and thoughts of Thomas Jefferson is sort of like listening to Hugh Hefner discuss the virtues of monogamy. 
And I want to thank whoever it is at the B that juxtaposed that letter with the photo of the beaming Hugh Hefner with the blonde on each arm. All right, let's move on to some other letters. Uh, I was quite tickled by this, uh, this email that was sent to Sacramento News and Review by someone named DJ. Said, said DJ, as a gay man, here are my observations and feelings on the issue of gay marriage. First of all, I don't give a damn about gay marriage, and neither do most of my gay friends. Statistics so far show that lesbian couples are marrying at twice the rate of gay male couples. Second, gay activists need to stop thinking they speak for all gay people on the issue of gay marriage. Third, how long before we'll hear these gay marriages ending up in divorce court after nasty and bitter breakups? Fourth, is the news media just focusing on the butch lesbians getting married, or are most lesbians more masculine than most straight men in California? And finally, I hate the color pink. Oh, we should explain there. The article is titled Pink Couch. And, you know, we like your input on this topic, particularly if you are gay or lesbian. Uh, uh, do you share our view that perhaps this is not the right time to be pushing this four months before a national election? And there's been a flurry of articles about how Gavin Newsom may ride this issue into the governor's office. Well, I suppose he might, but we hate to think that while he was riding into the governor's office, John McCain was uh, sitting in the Oval Office, thanks to Gavin's efforts. And speaking of governors, how about this article from the Sacramento Bee by Deb Collars? Governor Schwarzenegger is backing an eighth grade algebra exam. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, that most poorly taught of all subjects in American education, algebra, is no longer being confined just to ruining the, <laughs> ruining the education of ninth graders. They've moved it now into the eighth grade. Now, I admit I do have a certain personal bias here. When I first saw algebra in the ninth grade, I was puzzled because up to that point in my education, and it always seemed to me that uh, whatever subject I was studying actually had a reason for existing. Whereas algebra, as far as I could see, had about as much relevance as the conjugation of irregular Turkish verbs. But uh, Governor Schwarzenegger says he doesn't want to see a two-track system in California, one for high achievers and one for those of whom we expect less. I don't know. Next time a guy's waiting on your table... Or next time a guy is changing your spark plugs, why don't you ask him how much algebra he's had to use lately? Of course, while you're at it, why don't you ask people in the sciences how much algebra they've had to use? And the answer is, they will have to use some, but uh, my guess is they probably learned it in science class like I did, not in math class. <sighs> anyway, I feel better getting that off my chest. Anyway, let's do some funny stuff here for a second here. The Radar 100 is usually good for a laugh. And the July-August issue, this may not be one of their better efforts, but uh, this, there's some good ones here. The subject was Future Shock, 100 Things We're Not Putting in a Time Capsule. And I think we'll cite 8 or 10 of them. Okay, Things We're Not Putting in a Time Capsule. 1. Trump, the game. <laughs> Number 2. Trump, the human being. Number 3. Video montage of President Bush high-fiving world leaders. Number four, Joe Lieberman's High Holidays Yamaka. All right, 100 things we're not putting in a time capsule. 243 signatures on a petition to bring back the McRib sandwich with the note, finish our fight. And number six, Larry Craig Wide Stance T-shirts. Number seven, American flag lapel pin attached to Allen Keys. And let's see, 100 things we're not putting in a time capsule. 
Number eight, Tom Cruise's Sea Org uniform. And let's end with this one. The 100 things we're not putting in the time capsule. The rest of Monica Lewinsky's stained outfits. All right, one topic we've, uh, we've hit on this uh, program quite often is the issue of uh, the exclusion of people of certain color or economic status from the voting rolls. And as he often does, Gary Trudeau in Six Panels of Doonesbury seems to have uh, equaled uh, the hours we've spent on this subject. Panel one, Mark Slackmeyer in a radio interview says, we're back with Republican consultant Doug Chumley. Doug, is it fair to say that your brand is in trouble? Panel two, yes, but we're fighting back, Mark, by eliminating voter fraud. All over the country, Republican legislators are working tirelessly to create barriers at the polls. Third panel, by mandating strict ID requirements, we can disenfranchise the poor, the infirm, students, minorities, and anyone who can't be counted on to vote responsibly. Mark, fascinating. So instead of making your tent bigger, the strategy now is to make the Democratic tent smaller. Right. If we learned anything from Florida in 2000, it was the disenfranchisement works. The Republicans can win, even if they lose. Final panel. So the new GOP is all about hope. Hope and change. Changing the rules, changing the subject. We're change agents. All right, now it's time to hear from our old pal Will Durst, America's foremost political comic. Well, thanks, Doug. Today I want to talk about the vice presidential race, the only game in town. I mean, the presidential campaign has pretty much entered its hibernation phase. I don't know if you noticed, but the whole damn thing has gone dormant, stalled like John Goodman over the dessert table at a four-star hotel in the south of France. The candidates have left the stadium and are sucking down Gatorade, while the trainers are stepping wads of cash into the bowels of their uniforms, and the marching band and cheerleaders are out in the field distracting us with fiery batons. And the score at halftime finds Obama up by 15 points, which should excite the Democrats. I mean, the last time they had this kind of a lead at this point in the race was way, way back, oh yeah, four years ago, carry over Bush. Anyhow, we should enjoy this downtime and luxuriate the two full months before the conventions begin. We're just like now. Absolutely nothing is going to happen, but that nothing will be reported upon at such a great length that grown men are getting headaches just thinking about it now. About all you can get excited about until then is the veep stakes. Who's going to be number two? The vice presidency is a lot more important this time around than it was in Cactus Jack Garner's day. Garner's the guy who said the office wasn't worth a bucket of spit and it was only his good manners that compelled the man to use the word spit. This time around, the picks are going to resonate, because both of the nominees are vulnerable. John McCain is old and could permanently nod off at any time. Obama is black, and this is America, a country with more guns than library cards. Of course, the race to be the next tiebreaker in the Senate is wide open on both sides, and the speculation is so thick that you can actually hide small clusters of cherry tomatoes in the smoke coming out of Chris Matthews' ears. You got your public shortlist, and then you got your private shortlist, and then you got the slip of paper with Clinton and Romney's names on it. The only way these two get the nod is if every other politician in America trips and falls into an active lava tube. 
People say the vice presidency doesn't make any difference in the general election. Well, maybe not. But the choice of the vice president does have an impact. Do the names Ferraro, Quayle, and Eagleton have any meaning here? Or how about Admiral Stockdale, Ross Perot's pick in 92? Who am I? Why am I here? A question never adequately answered for him <laughs> or for us. For Radio Parallax, I remain Will Brooks. Always good to hear from Will, who will be taking a five-week sabbatical, unfortunately for all of us, until the week of August 4th. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's take a short break. <laughs> 